welcome to episode three of Future Shock. Today we're going to be talking about beginning the economic recovery, uh, and we are coming to you both via webcast on our YouTube channel, and you can also find us on all of the major podcast suppliers, Spotify, Pandora, what have you, um, under Future Shock. Uh, recording this as a podcast as well. My name is Matt Poland of Map Advising, and I'm here with my colleague Christian. Hello. Say hello, Christian. Hello, hello, hello. Let's get let's get this cranked up. There's a lot to talk about, and we we've been doing this in 30 minute segments. So, yeah, let's get into it, Matt. Okay, right on. So, our main topic of the day is the American Rescue Plan of 2021. So. This is a huge, significant investment in the American economy, um, putting money directly into people's pockets, putting money into states' hands, putting money into education. Um, it was signed in law a couple of weeks ago before we're recording here about on March 11th, um, and it is for $1.9 trillion in total. Uh, so. Today, this is going to be the primary focus, and we'll break it down sort of subject by subject on some of the provisions we think are going to have the more major impact on education and workforce development. And we are going to actually kick that off with uh, education. So I'm going to turn it to Christian on education in the bill. Thank you. Thank you. So, yes all the way from K through 12 to higher ed on up. So we, I was super excited to sort of see what was in this bill. We knew that there was gonna be some funding for education. We wanted to touch on a couple things as it pertains to sort of our future of work conversation and how it impacts the future of work. So one, uh, 128 billion for existing, the existing elementary and secondary school emergency relief fund with 90% of those, those local K through 12 districts that are happening. Uh, some of that, or ninety percent of it, has to go to the Title One to Title One schools. But this is a, a massive investment, a massive investment for for elementary and secondary schools. Which, during the pandemic, as we all know, for those who have children or those who have people uh, uh, you know, who work in who work in schools and things like that, you know the disruption that the pandemic caused. So the function of this money. Is definitely focused on that sort of uh, that sort of uh, concept and the where where that money is going to go. So I think, uh, as we've seen, remote learning sort of has has changed in a drastic way with virtual schools now being stood up in some states. I don't know, Matt, what's happening in California. I'm sure you, they probably had that infrastructure before, but where I'm at in Maryland, they're now talking in the county I'm in. They're talking about starting a, a virtual school which I'm sure some of this money is going to go toward. Do y'all have something? Yeah. Other than that? Is that something that's happening? Everyone expects California and specifically where I live in San Francisco to be ahead of the curve and technology and advanced stuff, but not, not usually the case. Uh, we, I think we're about in the same place as most places trying to deal with virtual learning and um, the school district, the San Francisco Unified, I think did a good job and did as much as they could, but you know, there were a lot of hiccups and I, you know, going forward, we, I, I don't have, my ex, my daughter goes to uh, fourth grade here in San Francisco Unified and I don't think we've seen a specific plan for virtual learning going forward. Um, but I'd like to hear more about the plan there. Yes, yeah, and uh, we're learning, it. it's, it's literally unfolding as it happens. So perhaps, you know, we'll, in, a, in a future episode when we talk about 
education, we can talk about that virtual component. You yeah. know, another another big part of where this 128 billion needs to go are things like repairing old ventilation systems. So there's infrastructure issues. It's not just about the virtual schools. It's about reducing class size and implementing social distance and all those things. Even though I went from six feet to three feet or whatever, you know, whatever's happening there. But you know, a lot of that, a lot of that's happening. I'll tell you what. $128 billion needs to go to in the state of Texas, specifically in Dallas. They need to fix that infrastructure, that power grid infrastructure. I don't know how they can yeah. how they can spread that money around. This is for schools, but yeah, Dallas got a real, got a real punch. Well, really, a lot of Texas got a real punch from that infrastructure they have there. That's something we'll be talking about in another episode, uh, in future episodes. Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully we will get to talk about a big infrastructure bill sooner rather than later. We'll probably touch on that again later in this episode, but you know, I was also wondering if the how much of this 128 billion might actually fund career and technical education. I mean, yeah, there's so much directly pandemic related, you know, that I'm sure schools will prioritize, of course, and they should uh, for health and safety and virtual learning and those those things that are really important. But you know, directly related to workforce development, building career pathways, and you know, hopefully, folks listening to this. Uh, podcast or this webinar, you know, that's something we can advocate for, right? Um, that some of this money um, be spent on enhancing career and tech ed in, in K-12 school districts. You know, that's something that flies under even our radar sometimes. You know, Matt and I, we work in higher education, so we're working with com community colleges and four-year institutions, but CTE starts in high school. CTE starts in, in the sec in secondary school. So those career pathways and those, that content that a, that a student or a would get at a, at, a, at a school, which would then matriculate to a community college happens in secondary. So now I agree with you, Matt, if, however this money shakes out and how much goes, how much goes to CTE, I guess, you know, we'll, 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 we'll find out, we'll find out soon enough, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that DOE did, a, will allocate and kind of, you know, use their hand at focusing some of this money on, on CTE and, and that career pathway uh, development. What, good what do you think? What do you think the universities, you know, the higher education folks are going to spend this money on? Similar things as K twelve, or I would I would imagine it's going to so that forty billion that's going to go to higher ed through the you know the existing um, H E E R the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund for those listening and not watching on the on the on the podcast there. You know, a lot of it's going to go to those to to grant programs, and I have a sense. That it's not going to be just capacity building. It is going to be training. There will be training dollars that go toward it. So, as we, as another thing that sort of Matt and I have worked on, if it's if it's apprenticeship or, or you know those those career and tech education programs that we've worked on in the community college space, we've seen billion dollar packages come down or funding packages, grant packages that came out of Department of Labor to help higher education, if it is a training grant or if it is a if it is a capacity building grant to help booster up the programs that are on those campuses, if it's if it's buying supplies and equipment and faculty and staff and all the things that go with a capacity building grant. Yeah. I'm imagining that's what we're gonna see through this. One however, one nuance to, to what we're talking about here is this 40 billion that there's a there's a line item about not it that 35.5% of that has to be FTE that are federally that are federal Pell Grant recipients. So because of that component about Pell Grant recipients, if there's you know universities that that uh, are just on a on a different spectrum of of tuition and financing, 
that that's that's not it's not exactly going to be able to go to them. So my guess is a lot of this funding is in fact going to go to community the community college world and that that part of higher education. Yeah, and we're you know we also know that there's changes to the federal ninety ten rule um, for for profit colleges. And do you, do you want to say more about that, Christian? Just because yeah yeah so what, yeah yeah what we. What we know is there's a change coming. What we don't know is exactly the change is. But what that federal 9010 rule is that non but for-profit colleges have to use at least 90% of that. They can only get funding for 90% of the uh, that are that are federally funded programs. So that is a that's a big, big change, and that's a depending on what side of the fence you want about whether or not they can receive more funding, more federal funding, if if they if they are not uh, does change. We've seen many changes over the last probably four years in the realm of for-profit colleges some that are some that are predatory some aren't uh, but but any change to this rule about whether or not they can receive more funding from the feds it will definitely impact for-profit colleges another reason why i put this in there about about for-profit colleges is what we've seen and this connects to, the, to our future work and this connects to the trends and things that are happening in the world of work and how students or whoever else, whoever's going back to school to get trained is getting impacted. We know that, and again, a pure advocate, a purist when it comes to public colleges and public universities, the public education. But we know it takes a little while to change curriculum, it takes a little while to change programming, it takes a little while to stand up certain things. Where for-profit colleges can move a lot quicker. And because they can move a lot quicker, they are they are primed to be able to train people faster in those fields of whatever the sector is uh, to get those programs stood up and then start enrolling students into those programs. So I say that as a, as a negative and a positive to for-profit colleges. That's, I'm, I'm nodding to them about their agility to make those changes because of how, what they do, but, and then sort of thinking about that predatory nature and the amount, the cost yeah. that some of these for-profit schools charge based on, you know, in comparison to a community college or a, or a public for institution, it's drastic. So this change could really impact for-profit college. I was gonna say, you know, yeah, there's certainly a role for for-profit colleges, but when there wasn't any kind of guardrails in place before the Obama administration, there was a lot of predatory practices, bringing students in, signing them up for student loans they couldn't afford, and then, the students not getting a job afterwards and couldn't pay back these loans, you know, while the college walked away with the money. Um, and so those were really important reforms that happened under Obama. I mean, I think there still needs to probably needs to be more, but um, there's also a place, right? It doesn't mean we shouldn't have for-profit colleges, but there just has to be more guardrails in place when they're for-profit. And okay. that, that, that gainful employment, kind of what you're talking about, that gainful employment uh, language, it impacted yep. a lot. It impacted the for-profits and impacted public, but definitely impacted for-profit just due to the ratio of what they were charging versus the income that someone could get when they finished. Yep. Yeah, point. And then last but not least, uh, important thing of student loan forgiveness. Um, yep. So any forgiveness, you know, paid out, you know, sort of people's loans are forgiven, they won't be taxed on that um, for the next several years, um, which is a really a good thing because... Yep. <laughs> That, that wouldn't that would kind of suck if you got your loan forgiven and then had to pay taxes on the amount that was forgiven right uh, that would be a big surprise at the end of the year for a lot of people so i'm glad that the folks writing this bill were thinking ahead and putting that in 
So moving us on to uh, our next topic, and I went to small business support. Um, there's actually a lot for small businesses and business in general. I mean, this is an economic relief bill, um, and it only makes sense to um, include a lot that directly relate to businesses. So uh, I'll kind of maybe I'll walk through these quickly, and then we can go into a little more detail on all of them. But um, some of the ones that Christian and I reviewing this thought might be a little more important to point out um, is $15 billion for childcare facilities. So, you know, specific carve out. Now there, there were several specific carve outs for particular industries or types of businesses. Um, but this is an important one, you know, obviously because of the impact that childcare has on one's ability to work, right? You know, that, and it's, it's sort of a, some, you know, a long-term problem again for the future of work that has to be solved. We have to have a system that offers childcare or a subsidized childcare, a way to, for people to have their children taken care of so they can go to training, so they can go to work. Um, a lot of people don't go to training because they can't find someone to take care of their kids or they, or they have to quit a job because of this. Um, and so this, this supports the facilities, you know, allowing them to kind of sustain and hopefully build and expand. Um, but we also have to, you know, the way to pay for childcare, which is not really in this, but then we, we have a next two are kind of a continuations of what came through in the CARES Act last year, uh, 7.25 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program um, and 15 billion for the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Advance Payments, right? So, uh, and one major difference that I noted in the Paycheck Protection Program is now, I believe it's gonna be administered directly through the Small Business Administration before it went through private banks. Um, and that was listed quite a, in quite a number of articles as a, you know, sort of a bottleneck for a lot of people. And I mean, and if we're talking about equity issues and things like that, of how the average bank does when it comes to equity um, and making sure that minority-owned, women-owned businesses had access to the Paycheck Protection Program. There was some evidence that a lot of them didn't, depending on where they lived, which banks they had access to. Um, so that was a big, big change, not just more money, but a big change in the, how the program's administered. Um, and then 15 billion, these are direct loans that are forgiven. Um, they call it a direct loan advance. They, I, I believe it's the same as last time. You don't have to pay them back. They're basic sure. grants. Um, and, and, then, and then finally, uh, $26 billion for restaurants, bars, and food service, you know, some of the hardest hit, one of the hardest hit industries. Um, so I thought one of, the, one of the specifics in there was there was, a, there's a, in that $28 billion, there's $175 million to create a community navigator pilot program to create awareness around participation and relief programs for business owners. That's interesting. So there's support, there's wraparound support system uh, we have to watch how we use wraparound, right? But there's a lot of support for those restaurants, food service businesses, and creating that sort of community navigator can really help those businesses that are socially or economically disadvantaged even, um, that, can, that can have access to this money, that can help apply and help, help bring them back. So I thought that was an interesting little line item in that, in that $26 billion. That's a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Um... You know, and there's, there's in, in all of the, these are some of the really top level big buckets. There's, there's sort of sub buckets and for the restaurants, you know, there's 
I, th I believe specific funding for businesses that have closed already and you know need money to reopen, ones that have stayed open and, and need the money to uh, continue operating. Um, so there's a number of nuances with, within there. There was a um, the restaurant association and, and other lobbying groups had already been lobbying kind of, as, it sounds like it was a separate bill that got put into this um, to help that industry that was really struggling as we all know at this time to, for, to stay open and to stay functioning. And there's, there's a lot of workers in that industry. Right. Uh, not always working for the best wages, but uh, you know, something we need to work on in that industry, but certainly, you know, being employed um, is better than not being employed and, you know, that's this, this will help with some of that. Yeah. That's another, that's another whole episode, right. About hospitality and, and, and the industry itself, uh, the pros and cons. Write these down. Christian, we'll have to write these down. So we like, you know, have a, have a running list of things we want to talk about and, and, and kind of plan ahead more than we, we tend to, <laughs> but, but this was, you know, we're glad this, this issue was like came up and is really important one to talk about, but um, yeah. And it, Anything else you'd say about small business support? I think the EDL, the EIDL, which is that economic injury disaster loan advance, that a lot of that in that first round and the fact that they made it, it wasn't quite clear in the beginning whether it was a grant or not, became a grant after months and months and months of that rollout. And then sort of the EIDL then transferred into the, or then you could apply for the PPP. Uh, that's a, that, that was a huge yeah. assistance. Uh, program for yeah there's a lot of confusion around I mean because this all came out really fast um, not a whole lot of rules around them which made them accessible but also kind of confusing and they just didn't have much time they wanted to get the money out um, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, small business majority it's an amazing org organization that kind of helps small businesses does advocacy for them they were doing a lot last year I'm sure they still are doing uh, weekly webinars, and they were helping folks with how exactly do you get a PPP loan? How exactly do you get the EIDL? And a number of other things trying to support businesses to stay open and thrive as best they could through the pandemic and, and afterward. But they do an amazing job. Um, so I would check out their their material too. I mean, yeah, and I'm, yeah, they, I believe that they, it has been a bit easier now. I mean, you had full on accounting firms having to help small businesses just for the, to apply. For the PPP, and it wasn't because of the confusion. It was just not that easy. It was just it was it was it, was, it wasn't easy. So, yeah, um, I'm glad to see it's being seamless and a lot more streamlined. Yeah. Not to mention there was a lot of grift going on with these, sure. and, and hopefully they've been able to tighten up some of those. Yeah, or lots of businesses we know got PPP and or EIDL that should not have. You know, right. not need the money. Um, and, you know, was, there was some taught, you know, creating shell corporations, all sorts of crazy stuff in some cases of, to, to take this money from the businesses that need it. So um, hopefully we do a better job of the rollout this time than, than last in that respect. Okay, so our next topic, um, also, you know, really important one uh, for individuals, you know, and, and something that um, the Urban Institute has actually said these four things, which I'll tick off in a moment here, will significantly reduce the U.S. poverty rate, um, and specifically the ones related to uh, funding for children. There's also evidence this is going to reduce child poverty, at least in the short term, and if we can make this permanent, um, 
this is a major step towards reducing poverty and child poverty. Uh, so just to go through the four individual um, supports, uh, particularly picked out by the Urban Institute, there's others, but there's a $300 supplement on employment insurance through September. That's a weekly, it's a weekly amount. Um, extensions of higher SNAP benefits also through September. So if you're receiving SNAP benefits, you got a bonus on there. They just released the amount that's going to be, and I, I don't have it at the top of my head, but uh, stimulus check um, of up to 1400 per person, which people are receiving already. Um, it's already falling into people's bank accounts um, as we speak. Um, and a one-year expansion of the child tax credit up to 3000 or 3600 per child. Um, so Christian, what's that's, your... Yeah, yeah. And this was from, you said the European Institute was saying that these yep. are the... I'm glad a couple a couple of things a couple of things about this. Well, first of all, the un unemployment insurance, as we saw so many people in early March, April, May, when the real shutdown happened, and it didn't look like anything was going to crawl back. Uh, it was so vital for so many people to get unemployment insurance. So I'm glad that that there's an additional supplement, and that is continuing. Maybe not the same fashion as it was, but at least it's continuing. About SNAP, and I'd be interested to read that urban report just to see how deep they go into it. SNAP is so underutilized at a state level. It's so underutilized. And no matter how many times a, you know, if it's a, if it's a counselor or if it's a, you know, it's a workforce board and all the, all the ways to find out or access SNAP, it's just underutilized. And there's enormous buckets in many states that have, that have worked around and have worked in and with, I should say, not in, but with, on, on, on the use of SNAP and the awareness of SNAP. So I'm glad that there's, there's, there's higher benefits, but there still has to, there needs to be some awareness, a bigger awareness. Marketing. I don't know what that means. They'll pay for a marketing campaign with some of this money. True, true. And maybe that's what it'll take. And maybe that's what, maybe that's what'll happen. And I just, and I don't know about it. Well, that's what, yeah, and I mean, and that's what they had to do with the ACA, right? Where the Trump administration completely gutted um, marketing and outreach for ACA. They didn't want people signing up for it. And that was one of the things that I believe the Biden administration immediately changed as a budget, you know, adding money back into the budget for the ACA and making sure people knew how to sign up for Obamacare and knew when the open enrollment was and knew, you know, they, I think they opened the open enrollment window. So really important things happen. But same thing here, like you're saying, like people have to know the benefit exists um, and be able to access it. The stimulus check, obviously, yeah, as you said, sort of falling into to people's now falling into checks of people that pay taxes. So, <laughs> so if you didn't pay, uh, you're not gonna you're not gonna get it. You don't have an account set up, or they don't. If you didn't, you didn't, uh, you didn't. I think it was either the 2000. You had to at least file in 19. You don't have to do your 2020 taxes, but I believe it at least filed 19, maybe maybe 18. So, right. Uh, and I believe that Matt, the cap was. 160,000 for a couple and 100,000 for an individual or something like that, maybe 90,000 for an individual. Um, I'm not thinking it was a little change from the last round of, yeah. of payments that went out. They took it down. And you, yeah, if you earn that much, then you don't get the 1400. And yeah, they based it on your last, the last taxes you filed, whether that was 2019 or 2020. And I'm not surprised that Urban would talk about sort of the one year expansion of the child tax. I mean, this all rolls up into what you started with in the last one was about childcare facilities and the return to work uh, and that that's schools opening. 
and childcare facilities being expanded and all the, all the things that go into how important that element is and those, those components are to get sort of America back, America rescued or what, what have you, uh, to get us back to work is all these elements that, that fold into to, to child care and you know, the, the assistance that the government gives for, for those that have children. Right on. So let's talk just for a minute about what's missing. Uh, what yeah. didn't it have that maybe it should have? And the first thing I'm going to throw out there is minimum wage. So if you're paying attention to the debate, um, the House passed a version that included a minimum wage provision of minimum $15 an hour national um, minimum wage. And the Senate couldn't pass it with that. So it got dropped in the Senate. Um, and this would have been, you know, this would have been a big deal to finally set um, a somewhat, maybe not as high as it should be, but close to where it should be minimum wage at the national level. Yeah, that, and the debate continues in this building, the one that's behind us, right? This is where all the, this is where it all happens. For those that are watching, you can see it. For those that are listening, you can't see it. But I, my background is of the, of the United States Capitol building. Um, no, that's, that's, I, I wonder how, where that's gonna, where that's gonna settle. And I wonder like how much, you know, why, why wasn't that in here? Maybe that was something that they just couldn't, they just, there was too much animosity between the two sides that they just couldn't make it work. They just couldn't make it work. Yeah. And, and I think what was also missing, one thing I was looking for, obviously in the, for this, this podcast webinar, webinar is, were you know things directly related to training and and employment services and things like that there there you, you can't really find that now there's a lot of places where money could be spent on that um you know there's a, a pretty large amounts the states are receiving to help uh pad their budgets where it's or, or fill gaps in their budget um and a few other places like we talked about earlier some of the education funding where it could be spent on training um, and direct workforce development activities, but no big bucket for that um, in this one. Right. In particular, to one thing that I that I thought was not miss it was it's missing. Yeah, I could say it was missing. Uh, is about particularly as sort of the future of work and sort of a, a return to a return to environmental jobs, green jobs, things like that. As as if I so I was looking at the I'm looking at the at the statement now. This was this one caught my attention, sort of about providing five hundred million dollars for low-income household drinking water and wastewater emergency program uh, to assist payments for drinking water and wastewater wastewater expenses. I'm picking on Dallas a lot, sorry, but the, the city of Dallas and Texas didn't have drinking water for almost a week. Um, yeah. So it, you know, the, the, this infrastructure, I'm really, I'm really, I'm, I really want to see what that infrastructure bill looks like. I don't know what it's going to cover, but but back, but seriously, about sort of energy and and sort of environmental and, and sort of green jobs. It didn't really, it didn't have a lot of that in there. We're seeing, we're seeing Tesla, we're seeing electric cars, we're seeing, we saw in the Obama administration, uh, tax credits on solar panels and all those other, those other kind of things that it, it didn't really address that. It does talk about weatherization a little bit in this. It talks about sort of like, you know, low, it talks about low income households for heating and cooling and energy costs right. and things like that. But there's, there's a weatherization component and or a potential solar component that could assist. So I, I, I'm looking through that lens of the environment. Like I didn't see a lot of stuff in that energy and environment section, which I thought they would have in this one. Yeah, that was a big deal in ARA, right? The American uh, Recovery and I'm missing the other R. 
It may, I hope they didn't use rescue again, but yes, it, in the fact it was uh, American, yeah, something, uh, yeah, American Recovery and Something Act. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah, there was a big chunk for weatherization, like you're talking about, there was a great, it was, there was a big green jobs component to that weatherization and uh, solar panel installation and training for jobs in solar, you know, was a big part of that. Um, so yeah, hopefully that's in the infrastructure bill. And uh, that takes us to the take home for today. So um, I'll start with the first one here, Christian. So um, I see, you know, for the workforce and education folks in the audience, uh, supporting businesses and accept accessing uh, PPP and EIDL is a great employer engagement opportunity. So any way that you can be helpful as a workforce service provider, as an education training provider, you could be helpful to your businesses. Here's an opportunity. Um, it's pretty easy to get the information and it would go a long way to learn a little bit about the process and share that with your businesses or offer to help them in some way. Right. The second one is about, right, the American Rescue Plan is going to help, but it isn't a permanent solution. And, at, you know, with me, with me in DC and with Matt in California, we see, you know, these cross state, these national programs, these federal injections into the economy Sure, it's going to help. Sure, it's going to support. Sure, it'll add some capacity building, but it's not a permanent solution. It's not going to. It's not going to be able to support this. This is just the injection into the economy and into those things that are in the bill that will help. But it's not a permanent solution. There's still, and this doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. If you're on the blue, you're red, Democrat, Republican, etc. This is a mindset that that's this isn't a permanent solution. There yeah. needs there needs to be other things that continue after. And it's going to be from the private sector. It's going to be from continued, uh, you know, return on the investment from the from the public sector. Even there needs to be some thought about it and how it's sustained and how this money builds the capacity for things to continue to progress and for America to be rescued after this after this pandemic. Yeah, and that leads perfectly into our third point about the next big policy play, um, the infrastructure bill, which is only in the early design stages. But this current American Rescue Plan um, is a stopgap and is going to try to help get us back on our feet. But the infrastructure bill will be funding to build, literally, right? Um, not just infrastructure, surely, hopefully that includes public works projects and jobs, um, but also build training programs and building an education system that helps put people into careers um, and a workforce development system that stays ahead of the future of work. Um, and how can we all in the education and workforce space advocate for those things to be included in this bill? Now's the time. Um, it's happening now. They're, they're deciding on the dollars now. All right, Matt, we got an, another, another, one, another one in the can. So for those who are watching, if you need to reach out to us, there's Matt's email, there's mine. Uh, for those that are stuck with us through episode one and two, if you haven't listened to it yet, please go back and listen to it. Again, we're on YouTube, Apple Podcast, <laughs> Podcast, Spotify, Anchor, the whole, all, all the podcasts, right, Matt? We're on, we're on all, all right. of them. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Please make sure to subscribe and, and come back for episode four. Thank you very much. Yeah. Until next time.